Please join me in a spirit of prayer. Gracious God, lover of souls, we thank you that you lead us from illusion into truth and that your grace prepares our souls to hear your word and to respond. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would we really want to engage Jesus in an argument? Would we really want to have an argument with Jesus? How do we think that would really go? Do you think our Lord would engage in casual conversation? Well, the Pharisees in our gospel today are finding out, aren't they? Engaging Jesus in a question does not go so well for them. And right there is a lesson for us. When you encounter Jesus, you're not just meeting a teacher or a philosopher. You are encountering the living God of Israel. You are encountering the wholeness and fullness of God in God's grace and truth. A scholar I read this week recounted the story of seeing Dr. Phil on TV. And Dr. Phil was asked the question, who would you most like to interview if you could pick anybody from human history? And Dr. Phil said, oh, I would most like to interview Jesus Christ. And the interviewer said to Dr. Phil, well, what question would you most like to ask Jesus Christ? And Dr. Phil said, I'd like to ask him to discuss the meaning of life with me. Now, this scholar said that Dr. Phil would probably get a lot more than that. He'd probably get a lot more than he asked for. Because with Jesus, we don't just have a teacher or a philosopher or a community organizer or a political rebel. We have the full presence of God that we encounter. And these encounters, Jesus uses for our salvation. Jesus brings the full power of God's grace and truth to these encounters so that we could be set free. That's what Jesus is doing when he engages us. That's what he is doing with the Pharisees in our story today. And if we approach the story just looking for a good story or a good lesson, we miss the gospel writer's perspective. The gospel writer is giving us an encounter with God that will transform us if we let it. Let me set up this story a little bit because the Pharisees aren't just asking a speculative question. It's not really a casual conversation or argument that doesn't have consequences. Jesus, in a few passages before this has cleansed the temple 
in Jerusalem. He has gone into the temple and thrown out the money changers. Before that, Jesus had entered Jerusalem in a triumphal procession at the beginning of Passover, an intentionally provocative action meant to lampoon and satire a Roman triumph. Jesus clearly setting himself out as an alternative to Roman occupation, oppression, and domination. So Jesus has been busy, how do we say, not making friends. He has created a stirred up and hostile environment in Jerusalem during the Passover, which was known for outbreaks of trouble. But here he comes. How interesting, how courageous and bold. He comes into the temple he has just cleansed. He has come into a place that he claimed as his father's house. And of course he'll be confronted by the authorities. The Pharisees are going to confront him with a question about authority. Meant to trap him and catch him and discredit him. This is not a friendly conversation or an abstract conversation. There are consequences. We are not far from the cross here. I try to hear this conversation like I heard conversations when I was in Guatemala or the West Bank of the occupied territories. When you are in a police state, the oppressed people speak a little differently. During Guatemala, during the Civil War, sorry, in Guatemala, during the Civil War, when I was there with my wife, you, it was hard to get a straight answer to an easy question. Everything was complicated. Why? Because people are in the practice of deflecting to save their lives. They're in the practice of not saying too much so they don't get in trouble. Jesus is doing the same. With his life on the line, because this is a life and death question, Jesus turns the table on the Pharisees and pins them in to a trap that they can't escape. They want to know his authority because they're trying to catch him in blasphemy to discredit him and hopefully arrest him. Jesus does the discrediting himself. He asks them a question about John the Baptist that they just can't answer without provoking the hostility of the crowds who believed in John the Baptist, or showing their hypocrisy by saying, oh, we actually believed him even though we didn't get baptized or follow him or protect him when Herod killed him. Jesus is extraordinarily clever. And Jesus turns the tables a little more. He then tells a very tart parable. And in this tart parable, he accuses the Pharisees of hypocrisy. And even more than that, he accuses them of not seeing what God is doing right in front of them. He accuses them of not having the spiritual and moral perception to understand that the living God of Israel 
the whole grace and truth of God is right in front of them, engaging them in the person of Jesus Christ. They are so attached to their position and power and tradition and the conceits and vanities that go with them that they cannot see this new thing that God is doing right in front of them. So why do I use that word conceit? It's a great biblical word. It's in the Magnificat, right? He will take down the powerful and the conceit of their own hearts. Well, in Greek, the word conceit is another word for emptiness. You know, like in Ecclesiastes, where all is vanity, all human striving, all human attachment is vanity, vanity, vanity. Once again, the same word meaning emptiness, conceit, illusion, all those things we mistake for success, all those things we try to use to secure our sense of self. Jesus is calling all of those things out in the Pharisees and calling those out in us. Now, I know a lot of times when we read stories about Pharisees, we refuse to identify with them. But if we want to engage and have an encounter with Christ, we need to see ourselves as the Pharisees who've been confronted. What conceits, what emptiness, what vanity and hypocrisy do we need to repent of? This leads us directly to the Philippians passage, one of my favorites in all of Scripture. Because remember, that word conceit means emptiness. Well, guess what? The word for Jesus emptying himself to become like us is the very same word, kenosis. It shares the same root. So we have this contrast between letting go of our conceit and the emptying of Jesus from his privileged, all-powerful position with God the Father that we are meant to follow. And a quick caveat, this is not the self-emptying of self-destruction. This is not the self-emptying of self-hate or self-loathing. And it has been taught that way to the detriment, especially of women and racial minorities. This is the letting go of privilege while holding on to the essential relationship, the essential identity. Jesus remains God even as he self-empties. Important point. We are asked to self-empty if we're coming from a place of privilege and self-aggrandizement and conceit and illusion. That's the self-emptying that's called for. And it's called for in this passage because the church in Philippi, like so many of St. Paul's churches, was in a crisis, a conflict. And what people needed to do, according to St. Paul, is let go of the empty conceit and find unity in their shared life in Christ through the cross, which sits right in the middle of that amazing hymn of self-emptying. Telling the truth, being confronted in your conceit and your false self in the 
assuredness and faith that grace will take you to new life and repair and reconciliation in the force of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. I love this movement of the Spirit. And I'll tell you a quick story about how it landed on me hard. I can be that hypocrite. I can be that person confronted by the encounter with Christ. Back in Chicago, I was working like I did often then and do often now with some struggling congregations. I was working with the diocese to try to merge two neighboring congregations on the south side into one church. And it was difficult. It turns out that one church had a bunch of refugees from the other church. And these refugees left that church because they felt despised and hated there. They were gay and lesbian people, and they had been really mistreated and told they were evil and wrong for the way they loved in that last church. And here we were trying to put these two churches together. And I'm sitting down with the part-time priest at the church where the refugees fled to, a wonderfully diverse, wonderfully open and affirming congregation. And I said to him really thoughtlessly, Bob, why can't we just live and let live? Why can't we just, you know, look past this difference and get together as a church and have unity? And that priest let me have it. He was also a gay man. And he would hear nothing of live and let live. He said, Jarrett, I will not do that. I will not pretend. I will not make unity by ignoring real conflict and real pain and real hurt and real damage. I won't do it. Oh, he was right. And I had to repent at rapid speed. I was embarrassed. I was a long time ally of gay and lesbian liberation and I stuck my foot in it. But that is the example. This unity we are called to in Christ is not a pretend unity. It's not a false unity. It's not the appearance of unity where we make nice and pretend that real conflicts aren't there, that our words aren't really hurting each other, where we pretend that when someone questions the soul and existence of another person, that that's not horrible and painful and wrong. That when someone speaks unthoughtfully in, in ways that scar people because of the hurtful history of the church in this country, and we just let it pass. No, that's not the unity we're called to. We are called to truth and grace. We are called to unity in the mind of Christ, in the cross of Christ, where God's love is revealed in the starkness of our rejection of that love, where truth and grace come together and grace overcomes. We are not called to be truth-avoiding people. 
No, we are called to be repenting people who, when confronted with the truth, have the faith in Jesus Christ to move through the process of the cross to new life and our minds and souls renewed in the spirit of Christ who will then bring our relationships back together, but only on the basis of truth. My brothers and sisters, let us commit and believe that God's grace embraces our truth in our brokenness, in our failure, and in our, in our glory. And let us let God make the unity among us as we repent of our conceits and our emptiness and privilege and find a new life together in Christ. Amen.